Thank you for joining me for this episode of People Know Stuff. If you know stuff, I'd like you to be a guest on my program. Please visit my website and drop me a line. Hi, this is Deborah Butler. Thanks for joining me for my show, People Know Stuff. And today I'm really excited to have Mary Radford with me. Mary spent her career as a professor, and she was a professor in the College of Law. She was at Georgia State University, and Mary's Mary's area of expertise was estate planning, and she is uh, very familiar with wills and trusts. And I've asked Mary if she would give us an overview that everyone really needs to think about. And we're talking about planning for the end of your life and is not something that we believe is going to happen, but in all likelihood it is. And we don't always do a very good job of planning for it, but Mary, help us out. Okay. I know that you have about five points you want to look at. So why don't you tell us, kind of give us an overview of what you're going to talk to us about, and then let's dig in. Okay, Deborah. Thanks. And I will confirm that there's a hundred percent chance that all of us will have an end of life. And one of the few <laughs> things that's certain, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about something that people don't always think about when they think about estate planning. People always think about right, what's going to happen to my property after I die, but it's really important to think about the good possibility that towards the end of our lives, we will lose capacity. And so there are lots of important decisions that'll need to be made and we'll need to have help. So the basic things that I'll cover today, first of all, financial powers of attorney, which deal with how your property is handled. And then under the topic of healthcare decision-making, I'll talk a little bit about living wills, about healthcare powers of attorney, and then about some other possibilities that at least exist in some states for things like psychiatric planning. And at the end, if you'd like, I'll give you a couple of websites you might want to check out to get either uh, referrals for attorneys or maybe more information about what I've talked about today. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Mary. So take it away. Okay. Well, let's start with finances. Now, if you get to a point in your life where you can't handle your finances and you haven't done any advanced planning, that's when the court would have to step in. And the court will appoint somebody, uh, different names in different states, often called a conservator, sometimes called a guardian. And that person is not a person you chose. That's the person whom the court thinks will do the best job handling your property. On the other hand, with some advanced planning, you get to choose who's going to handle your property. And you even get to direct that person as to how to handle your property. For example, whether gifts should be made or um, whether bank accounts should stay open, things like that. And the document that you need for that kind of planning is called a financial durable power of attorney. Now, it has different names in different states, but you'll usually see the word financial and you'll usually see the word durable. The durable is important because what that means is that even if you lose your capacity to make decisions, the power of attorney stays in place. So what's a power of attorney? You start with you, you're the principal, and you decide who will be your attorney in fact. So this is not a lawyer that you hired. This is your attorney, in fact. Some states call that person your agent. 
And you usually want to pick somebody who's responsible because, of course, they're going to be handling your money. And you want to pick somebody who has some degree of sophistication with that. So with a financial power of attorney, again, you, the attorney, excuse me, you, the principal, pick your attorney, in fact, your agent. And then in a typical form, you'll check off all of the things that you're authorizing your agent to do for you. So that might be just something simple like sell a house, or it might be something huge like everything I could do if I still had capacity. Well, what does the document say when they would begin to act on your behalf? Or are there certain things that trigger that? Again, these things will vary from state to state. But in many states, not all, you're allowed to write into your document when that action will begin. So often people write something really vague. They say, when I become incapacitated. That's a little bit difficult for anybody to determine. So the better power of attorney will be one that specifies something like when two physicians indicate that I no longer have the capacity to handle my finances or when all of my children acting unanimously state that. Now, in some states, it's possible that the only option you will have is that your power of attorney becomes effective immediately the minute you sign it. So again, you want to pick somebody you choose. So for instance, if I chose you, I would say, Deborah, this is effective immediately, but I trust that you will not go out and try to use it until I'm no longer able to act for myself. Yeah, it sounds like there's some real risk in that. Um, but it, you know, there's seems like there's a real potential for abuse. How do you make sure that you are not abused? You're right. There's a lot of potential for abuse uh, because these things are fairly easy to obtain. So again, that's why I think it's important not to just do this on your own. People do it. You can get a form on the internet pretty easily, but at least work with a responsible individual, somebody perhaps, again, your attorney, perhaps your accountant, perhaps somebody in your family whom you know is somebody that's trustworthy. And if things do go sour, then again, other interested people in your family can go to the court and say, this is not working. She's being abused. Please appoint a conservator or a guardian for her. So at that point in time, the court basically says to the agent, you no longer have that power. So what does the durable part of it mean? Well, the durable part goes back to a, um, a segment of the law that basically says for any action by an agent, the agent can only do what the principal can do. But here, the principal won't be able to do anything because she's incapacitated. So what the word durable means is that the power of attorney endures even when the principal becomes incapacitated. And that's really why you have one anyway. Right, exactly. exactly. Because you have become incapacitated. I was curious when you said that the court might appoint someone, what might be an example of a circumstance where you would even come to the attention of the court and they would need to appoint someone. Well, somebody will have to file a petition. And what often happens in these situations is you've got family members who are observing the fact that maybe mom or dad is uh, losing checks or making these strange contracts with people who want to blacktop her her driveway for $500,000, things like that. So they'll petition the court and one of them usually would ask to be appointed guardian or conservator. And so mom wouldn't have done this in advance. And now it's up to the children who see, uh-oh, 
she's making bad decisions. And because we don't have this document, financial durable power of attorney, we're going to have to go to the court and try to get an intervention. Exactly. And and that can be pretty traumatic. I mean, imagine what it's like, even if you don't have complete capacity, if you have any capacity to sit in a courtroom and have a bunch of people get up and talk about how crazy you've become. So you really, you want to try to avoid that if you possibly can. And, you know, so I, I hear where it's really important to have it while you're still able to plan and think ahead, because there you have insisted that we're all going to die. Um And like you said, there's a good chance that before we die, we might not be on top of our game if we live long enough. Um, But I hear where there's two kind of threats. One of them is if you don't have this. And the other one is if you do and you've assigned it to someone that takes advantage of you. That's right. And, And no system is perfect. And a lot of times what the courts will see is that other family members have watched one family member who became the agent abuse that power. Right. There's always that back, backdrop that you can always bring it back into the court. Okay. So the family could see, oh, she assigned it to her daughter. Her daughter is spending all of her money and the family can go and say, we we really need to intervene. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. So get that one taken care of while you can. And then another thing, too, is um, make sure you appoint someone that may outlive you. It would it would seem that would seem like it would be a great idea. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. You can also in your power of attorney, you can also appoint a backup agent. So, you you know, you might be absolutely uh, certain that you do want to appoint your sister, but maybe your sister is close to your age. So you might appoint a niece or nephew as a backup agent. And could you, staying with that just for a minute, could you also think about appointing an actual attorney? You could. Most attorneys won't take that role, that responsibility, because their job is to be a little bit more neutral, to be pulled back and watching the entire situation rather than acting for the client. So might you be suspect of an attorney who would volunteer their services, huh? Uh, I might be. Yes. Okay. It's wrong in all cases, but are there professionals that you might turn to? I mean, you know, there may be people who really don't have trusted family members or trusted friends, and they'd like to go to more of a a professional that they could assign this to. Would, could you think of an obvious professional you might assign it to? I wish I could say yes. In every state, there are lots of people who are professionals who do this. Unfortunately, they're not. It's a real gap in our society. We need people who are what they call professional individual fiduciaries. The word fiduciary meaning somebody who can take on a position of trust. But unfortunately, that career path has not really caught on. Interesting. All right. Keep moving. Okay. So we've got to move to healthcare decisions. Okay. Those are actually the ones that I think people worry about more than anything else. And the worry started way back in the early 1900s when a um, a group of people came up with a concept that was called the living will. Now, the living will is not really a will because a will takes effect at death, but a living will takes effect during life. And the purpose of the living will is to tell the physicians and the healthcare providers what kind of treatment you want at the end of life. For some people, the choice is, I want everything. I don't care how much it takes, and I don't care whether I 
even realize I'm having it. I want all the nutrition, all the medication, all the hydration. I want to be resuscitated, anything I want. Some people will go on the exact opposite end of the spectrum and say, when it becomes apparent that I'm not going to recover, then stop everything. Stop medications. If I get an infection, don't give me antibiotics. Don't give me artificial hydration. Don't give me artificial artificial nutrition. And then some people kind of choose an in-between path. Well, the document that allows you to do this became known as the living will. It's not called that in all states anymore, but that's a, a name that people seem to recognize. So that deals only with the specific situation in which somebody is truly terminal. They are within a very short period of time uh, at risk of dying or in a persistent vegetative state, You know, not just a temporary coma caused by a car accident, but something that they're just not going to ever get out of. So another development a little bit later in our history was to come up with the concept of a power of attorney for healthcare. And so this works the same way. I'm the principal. I appoint my agent or my attorney, in fact, and my agent is the one who tells the doctor what to do, what not to do, what to withhold, what to administer. And if I don't have this, the states do have various statutes to say who has priority to give medical consent. But for example, in every state statute, the children are in maybe probably the second or third priority. Well, suppose you have three children and they don't agree as to what I would have wanted. That's why it's important to even if you have children and you know that the state has that statute to go ahead and make the choice yourself. Who do you want to to tell the doctor what to do? And again, you want to choose somebody trustworthy, obviously. And you want to choose somebody who will follow your wishes. So you want to have a long discussion with that person about what your wishes are. So once you've established, okay, this person is going to handle the financial decisions, then you need to make decisions about what you want if you get really sick or you're incapacitated. And broadly, that would be called a living will. Um, I think they're called advanced directives too. Some states call them that, but some states combine the living will and the power of attorney into one document and they call that an advanced directive. Okay. All right. And then with both of those, essentially what they do is express your wishes, but it's also a really good idea to communicate that to people. Right. And and the other thing to keep in mind, the, the living will is only end of life, very end of life. Whereas the, the power of attorney for healthcare, for example, um, I could be in a car accident and not able, again, to communicate with my physician as to whether I want my leg amputated or not. Well, then that's not an end of life situation, but that's where an agent could come in and say, oh, yes, she she would want that or no under no circumstances, she would rather die than have that happen. So it's possible that somebody could have a living will, which says whether or not they want the full extent of possible treatment or not, but they wouldn't have the um, the health care power of attorney assigned to anyone. And, and then they get into a car accident and and we've got to make a decision now, should we amputate their leg and nobody's there as their agent. So, right. Or two or three of the kids are there and they're all telling the doctors different things. Okay. Yes. But you're right. It's possible that you would just have the one and the living wills have been around a lot longer. So probably more people have those than have the, the uh, power of attorney. 
but the power of attorney again is is more effective in the sense that right now I'm sitting here perfectly healthy and I can say, oh, this is what I want at the end of life. But I don't know what my circumstances are going to be at the end of life. I don't know what advances they will have made in healthcare. Isn't it better that I have somebody who's actually going to be on the ground at that point in time, somebody I trust, to make an appropriate decision for me? Yeah, ideally, you would think it would be. And I can just imagine all kinds of complications, like when they need to be there on the ground making the decisions, they may have been in the accident with you. Right. Um, but you do your best to cover cover your bases. Um, and I know it's, it's really hard to make those kinds of decisions in advance. Um, these are hard things to fill out and hard things to decide on, which is, I guess, why a lot of people just default to... I'll do it tomorrow. Right. Or just let everybody else decide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also you mentioned um, what happens if the agent isn't available, just like the financial power of attorney, you can, and you should write in backup agents. Okay. Yeah. Backup agents in both cases are advised. Sure. All right. What else? Well, just a couple of other things to mention in uh, many states, they are now allowing physicians to issue what's called a post a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. Now, this is different than what we've talked about so far because this comes about as a result of a conversation between the physician and the patient. And then the physician records in this post what the patient wants, and it can be really, really detailed. It will address things like antibiotics, um, do not resuscitate orders, (coughs) things like that. And that becomes a doctor's order. And so in the file, it has more authority than the healthcare advanced directive or the living will. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in our medical system, we don't know, but a lot of states are promoting this. And uh, the individual who makes a post has got to be expected to die within the year. Now, if you don't die within the year, it's still effective. (laughs) You don't have to die. That's not a requirement. But that's something, again, that um, many physicians are now you know, becoming aware of and suggesting to their patients. Yeah, that sounds like a great additional planning device that's like exactly. really brings expertise and brings, you know, they're there in the moment. And right. does it, it doesn't have to identify who the doctor would be. It just says I empower the attending physician to. It really doesn't even talk about who would do what. It just talks about what will be done. Just, just like any doctor's order in a, in a chart would say, resuscitate, do not resuscitate. It, it doesn't necessarily say who, in fact, is going to be doing that. So in other words, once you, you just sign and say, yes, I'm willing to let this occur. Right, right. And then it's supposed, to, it's supposed to be reviewed every six months. These are so new that we really don't know for sure, you know, whether that's being done. And could you spell that? It's a... It's uh, the nickname, if you will, is P-O-L-S-T, Pulse. and a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. Okay. And again, right. that's the most common name. They have different names in different states. Okay. And I think what we were going to provide as we wrap up um, is, you know, I know that we've talked about ways to manage our finances if we're not able to, and then uh, ways to think about our health care if we're not able to make those decisions. Um, We were also going to give people some resources on thinking about 
the designation of their money after they've died, because people don't always know where to go to get legal advice. And I wanted to make sure that they were aware of uh, a group of attorneys who have been selected to be members of an organization that then identifies them and they are indeed truly experts in wills and trusts. So do you want to say something about that, Mary? Right. There's a group called the American College of Trust and Estate Council, and that's C-O-U-N-S-E-L. It's called ACTEC for short. And in order to be invited to join ACTEC, you don't just send in your money and your application. You have to have, first of all, have 10 years of experience in estate planning. And you have to be recommended and voted on by your peers. So if you're looking for an attorney to help you with any of these issues, if you go to their website, it's real easy, www.actec.org. Be sure to go to .org because if you go to .com, you get an entirely different group. And they, in um, on the ACTEC website, they actually list these attorneys by state. And even within the state listings, they'll tell you what uh city they're in. So it'll help you find somebody who's close to you. All right. Um, The American Bar also is a great source of of information about so many of the things that we talked about today. So if you go again to AmericanBar.org, they have a resources section. And for example, uh, if you wanted to look up about the living wills and the powers of attorney for healthcare, if you go to their resources section and look under healthcare decision-making, they have videos, they have brochures, they have uh, all sorts of online resources. So before you actually get into the the weeds of having one of these documents drafted, you can familiarize yourself with all of the different considerations. That's great. Well, I feel like you've really given a good um, overview of what needs to happen as you consider your planning for end of life. And um, again, it's hard to get on top of it. It's easy to put off, but if you don't, then somebody else is going to step in and it's better to go ahead and do it now. And, um, and I'm certain that any, any attorney you might um, go to for help will also encourage you to get the documents in place for, for these concerns. Right, exactly. Well said. I mean, procrastination is our biggest enemy and we're all guilty of it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mary. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for this episode of People Know Stuff. If you know stuff, I'd like you to be a guest on my program. Please visit my website and drop me a line. Mm -hmm.